Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Donald Robertson, the author of the new graphic novel, Verissimus, The Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. Donald is a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist and the founder and president of the Plato's Academy Center, a nonprofit in Athens, Greece, which you'll hear more about in the episode. He is also the author of How to Think Like a Roman Emperor and many others. In the conversation, Donald and I discuss leadership lessons from Marcus Aurelius, ancient philosophy and modern leadership, the dichotomy of control, the wisdom of impermanence, and much more. As you'll hear in the episode, Plato's Academy Center has an upcoming virtual event titled Ancient Philosophy for Modern Leadership on Saturday, 3 December. I'll put a link in the show notes to register for free, or you can visit platosacademy.org. All right, without any further delay, please welcome back to the show, the wise and gracious Donald Robertson. Well, today I'm excited to chat with you about philosophy and leadership, two things that I don't often hear put together. So I I think it's awesome. You've got an upcoming event with Plato's Academy on December 3rd, Ancient Philosophy for Modern Leadership. Mm -hmm. And I thought maybe we could start if you could share with the listeners a little bit about what you've been up to with Plato's Academy. A lot of things like <laughs> yeah. i'll warn them in advance then because it's probably a quite long story so we should say i should say what plato's academy center is it's a non-profit organization that we founded um in athens based in athens in greece so it's kind of been on the go for about a year and a half but we incorporated at the beginning of this year officially and because of the pandemic and stuff the the goal was to build a conference center near adjacent to the original location of Plato's Academy in Athens. And so because of the pandemic, we started off running events online. So this is our third virtual event. We've had 1,500 people attending the previous event. So we got off to a reasonably good start. We hit the ground running. And uh, we're looking at properties uh, for this longer-term project of possibly having a kind of set, a smaller centre and also a a larger event space. Uh, we just ran a big event for our first in-person event. We assisted uh, a networking organization called the YPO um, for young CEOs to have uh, about 80 of them came to Athens over four days. And one of the locations they visited was Plato's Academy Park. And we did this event in the middle of the park, which is kind of historic in a way. I don't think They've had many, maybe never any events of that sort in the middle of the park, you know, among the archaeological ruins and stuff. We threw up a marquee and the mayor of Athens came to it and spoke at it. We had the Minister for Development and Investment come, the US ambassador. 
Um, we got a, a speech that was sent because she was out of the country from the Minister of Culture. So we got a lot of government, a lot of government support for it. And uh, yeah, that's what we've been doing. And now we've got this on the 3rd of December, uh, another virtual event that we're running and then hopefully some other stuff next year. That's it's awesome. And, and you think about it and there may be people listening that think that maybe a bit surprised that something like that doesn't already... Yeah. Exist. <laughs> oh, look, okay, there's a story, right? So I went to, I go to Greece a lot. I've got permanent resident status in, in Greece. So I kind of joke that I sort of live in three countries. If they ever, if I ever get hit by a bus and they kind of find my wallet, they're going to think I'm like Jason Bourne or something because I've got like two passports and a permanent resident card for like different countries. I'm, I'm British and Canadian and have resident status in Greece. And, uh, so I spent a lot of time in Greece, and I went round obviously all the historic locations, checking them out, museums, because I'm a bit of a geek like that, and it's what I like to do. And then one day I thought, oh, I'll go to Plato's Academy, right? And I was like, is there anything there? Like, I'd never heard anyone talking about it, and I thought, it's kind of weird, there's probably nothing there, right? So I went, it was, it was walking distance from where I lived. It's in the middle of Athens, and there's a, like a big park, it's 20 or 30 acres, it's a... Uh, what I think is funny about it is that the on Google and stuff in, in Greece they refer to it as a dog park. Like <laughs> and so I went to this dog park and tourists hardly ever go there. It's full of Greeks walking their dogs, they exercise there, the kids play there, and kind of among the ruins and stuff, right? Um it's just a public park. It's t- like 10, 15 minute walk from it's probably like the centre of Athens, the tourist district and stuff. But it's just ignored. It's completely no one pays any attention to it. And uh, there's even like it's kind of quite poignant in a way. There's a battered old road sign that I took a photograph of that says "Archaeological Ruins of Plato's Academy This Way," like like as if you know, yeah, there's this thing here, but no one cares. Like, and I, I what was really weird was that the first time I went there, I'd just been to a place called Carnuntum in Austria a few years back which is the location of the legionary fortress where Marcus Aurelius wrote part of the meditations in Austria. Mm. And uh, it's, that's crazy as well, but for the opposite reason. They've, they've reconstructed an entire second century Roman villa there, like with working bathhouse and kitchen and everything. Like, so they've put all this money, like millions and millions of euros into developing this archaeological site that probably very few people have actually heard of. Marcus mentions it in the meditations. He says, at Carnuntum at one point. You go there, it's like amazing. And then you go to the Plato's Academy, which is one of the most famous historic locations in the world. And like, there's nothing there. Um, there's ruins of a building which may have been some kind of philosophical school. Um, Plato is, it took me a while before the penny dropped for me even just, I was walking around there one day and, and putting together the pieces because no one tells you any of this stuff, right? I'm walking around and I thought, suddenly it dawned on me, I thought, hang on a minute, Plato's buried here. Like, he's literally under our feet. Like, and we know what the inscriptions were, the epitaphs on his tomb and stuff. I thought we could, like, we could reinstate his tomb. Like, we could build a, a memorial to it and reinstate the epitaphs if we wanted to. Like, it's it's strange. There's a statue of Plato with his nose broken off. Like, I guess the local kids threw a brick at it or something like that. But <laughs> it's it's odd. So I thought, I can't understand why there isn't a conference centre here already. Because as someone who runs a lot of events, I thought, if someone said to me, 
hey Donald, like, how would you like to run an event at the original location of Plato's Academy and then bang in the middle of Athens? I'd be like, let's let's do it. Like, let's arrange one. Yeah. And so I started chatting to people that speak at events and other events organizers, and I'd just kind of throw it into the conversation, spitballing or whatever. And I'd be like, hey man, would you want to come and speak at the original location of Plato's Academy? And everyone was like, hell yeah, that sounds amazing. And I'd get to go to Greece for a holiday and something like that. Sounds like great. <laughs> um, and they were like, can you do that? And I was like, nah, like, there's nothing there. It's a dog park. Like, and then they were like, kind of disappointed. <laughs> and then people started saying, well, why don't you build a conference center? And I thought, I don't know how to build a conference center. But I got talking to people. Luckily, one of my friends is a chartered surveyor. Um, he's just been to Greece again, looking at properties and stuff. So, you know, it kind of took on a life of its own somehow. And now I've created this monster, like, whereby the, the, half the Greek government are kind of involved and, like, we've got this um, crazy plan to, to build something. But the other reason, I guess, for doing it is it's a social enterprise because the suburb of Athens that it's in is, I think it's fair to say... Like even the, the the Greeks would say it's quite an economically deprived area. There's a lot of graffiti and stuff, and there's not a lot of mm. wealth in that area. And yet, it's got a historic location that I sometimes say is is kind of more famous than Coca Cola in a way. Like everyone in the world has heard of Plato's Academy, even if they know nothing about it, because every single academy in the world is named after it. Like everyone recognizes the name. Like, but there's nothing there. And so I thought, well, we could just bring business here and it would help to renew the, the yeah. local area. So we created a non-profit um, for that reason. Where would you point any listeners that are inspired to, to help support this project? They can go, or we've got a website, which is platosacademy.org. And if they go there... There's even a page on the website on the main menu that's like, how can you support us? And, you know, people can volunteer or they can just help share stuff on social media or they can attend our events. All of our virtual events are free of charge, by the way, and we're funded entirely by donations. So luckily people are pretty generous and they just throw us a few bucks here and there when they attend the events. And it means we can run all of these free of charge events with like world-class speakers and stuff, which is pretty cool. So... You know, if people want to come and uh, donate, like that helps us to keep doing what we're doing. Love it. Well, we'll we'll link it in the in the show notes so it's easy to find for people. And then I, I was thinking, other big news since last time we spoke is this beautiful graphic novel is yeah. out in the in the world here. It is absolutely awesome. How does it feel to have this thing finally? out in the world i think it's real i i didn't realize this because it took me i was so immersed in it so to create that book took a team of people and years of research and you normally have a year to work on a book roughly or less like it took us about two and a half years to do that because it takes a long time to do a graphic novel like that and i think what i didn't realize is that then when i was telling people about it they kind of underestimated in a way what it would be like so if i say oh it's like mm -hmm. a comic about stoicism they're like that sounds rubbish like, but when they open it, they're like, whoa, there's quite a lot of stuff in here. Like, it's, uh, we spent, we had um, consultants for the historical accuracy of the artwork. I spent a lot of time researching the dialogue to make it authentic. Um, I spent years and years and years researching the meditations and the life of Marcus Aurelius to try and integrate the story. Um, so there's a huge amount of work 
way went into it. And I think you can tell when you're, I hope, I think you can tell when you're reading it that it's not just like a throwaway thing, like that there's a lot that's kind of gone into it. And we decided, I, when I started researching it, um, I didn't know that much about graphic novels. So I read a lot of books on how to write graphic novel scripts and how to do the artwork and stuff. And the best one, by the way, is Scott McLeod's Making Comics, which is a, a, an amazing book. I read it cover to cover about two or three times. Like, that was mm-hmm. like my Bible. But I, I started looking for inspiration in graphic novels. And then I, for some reason, I, they didn't really work out for me. I, I wasn't connecting with it. So I started watching loads of movies and TV series about sodden, all sorts of sodden, not just Rome, but Greece, the Scythian, you name it, like all sorts of historical stuff. And uh, and that was where I got my inspiration from. So we ended up making it, a graphic novel could just be little stick men with speech bubbles, right? But ours is much more cinematic because the, yeah. that was where I was kind of drawing the ideas from. And the script for it is like 100,000 words long. And like it's 90 pages, I think. So it's based on a really extensive script with loads of reference images. One day, what I'd like to release, if there's ever a second edition of it, like the kind of DVD extras would be some of the artwork that Zay drew with the reference images that I gave him. So you would see that we went Mm. around and took hundreds of photographs of inscriptions, landscapes, archaeological sites, um, museum exhibits and stuff. And so Zay has incorporated a lot of that into the, the artwork in the graphic novel. I think it's really cool when you see them like side by side and you'd, you'd understand like it's not just kind of like made up stuff. Like they, they, he's taking inspiration from things that we went around and researched and photographed. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, I was going through it again the, this morning. I'm curious to maybe transition into leadership. Mm -hmm. You know, you think of this Plato's Academy Mm -hmm. story that you were just talking about. You know, no one's, no one did it. You know, you think something exists and it's like a weird thing. Something that I don't think comes up maybe as much in, in stoicism, but just this idea of believing and having some sort of potential that you can do it. I'm, I'm thinking of um, maybe Marcus Aurelius writing about these ivory, the, the dream he had of these ivory shoulders of, of kind of seeing himself as something yeah. that you can do. And it might not be a solo endeavor like you with Plato's Academy, but I think we can do something here, some sort of belief in, in yourself and, and ability. It's a very mysterious dream. I think in a way also, I think people might underestimate when I'll go, I'm going to step back and then I'll go forward again. When we're writing the graphic yeah, novel, please. like many people underestimate how much we know about Marcus Aurelius. We have a lot of material on him, but there's obviously gaps in it, right? Because it's Roman histories and stuff like that. So to translate it into a graphic novel, we need to kind of fill in a lot of the gaps and create dialogue. But I think people would be surprised how closely it's based on the surviving evidence and the ancient biographies and other bits of evidence and, you know, the, the variety of sources that we drew on, like his private letters and other pieces of literature from the period and stuff. But that dream is a really cool example. I think it's um, 
if I remember rightly, it's in the Historia Augusta. Maybe it's in Cassius Dio as well. But we're, it's very cryptic. It's just kind of dropped in and we're, it's not really explained what the dream represents and stuff. So we spent a lot of time just like really discussing it and thinking like, what could it mean? And so in this dream, Marcus, when he was told that he was going to be adopted into the Imperial family, um, had this weird dream where he had arms and shoulders that were made of ivory. And he he wasn't sure... It freaked him out in the dream, and he thought, do my arms still work? Like, and then he found some heavy object. We're not even told what the object is, but he lifted in the dream up this heavy object, and he thought, my arms seem to be much stronger than before, even though at first I was kind of like worried whether they would work or not. And it's just left hanging. Like We're not told how the Romans really interpreted this dream. But I think if we really just meditate on it and think it through, it's obviously a dream about a guy who's anxious about um, being unable to uh, deal with some obstacle that he's facing and then suddenly realises that what he saw as a weakness previously turns out actually to be a strength. And so at the very mm. least, I think we can interpret the surface meaning of the dream in that way. And so that's how we kind of try to interpret it um, in, the, in the graphic novel. Like, so I, we can read more meaning sometimes into kind of fragments of things just by trying to really visualize them and also putting them in the in the historical context. The most obvious interpretation of that is, and I talk a lot more about it, and I've just written a prose biography of Marcus Aurelius. I've written three books about Marcus Aurelius in a row, weirdly. And so that's not coming out for ages because the way the publishing works. But I finished writing several months ago a, a book for Yale University Press about Marcus and there we kind of really go into the interpretation of the dream in a little bit more detail um, because for example having in this dream his shoulders are bare like which is kind of usually something that's associated with philosophy uh, Epictetus famously talks about this in the discourses he says show me your shoulders like because philosophers didn't wear a, a shirt they just wore a kind of cloak or shawl over it. And so the perception was that they're refer philosophers are often referred to as half-naked by Greeks and Romans because they're, they're just, it's like they're wearing like um, uh, a cloak or a shawl or something, but not like a, a shirt underneath it. Um, and so it, it it's tempting to think it, it has something to do with philosophy and specifically it would be like cynic or stoic philosophy that would be associated with that way of dressing. So it looks like Marcus is saying that he saw his interest in philosophy is a weakness at first, somehow in relation to becoming emperor, which would make sense. But he gradually came to see it as actually more of a strength. And for sure, like if Stoicism um, was an asset to him as emperor, it, in the meditations, we can see him really leaning into that. Like, you know, he's really putting a lot of time and effort into stoicism as a way of coping with the situation that he finds himself in. And another thing that we can read into that, and just from Marcus's biography in general, is that he was intimidated by mm -hmm. the office of emperor. Like, he, it's often said that uh, people are reluctant to become emperor. And, and sometimes people kind of raise an eyebrow at that. They think it's propaganda or it's fake or whatever. I don't think I'd want to be Roman emperor. Like, a lot of them were assassinated. You know, it's extremely yeah. dangerous. You know, like, the, the legend of the sword of Damocles is absolutely captures what it would be like to be Roman emperor. Marcus was, I think, as a young guy, scared. Like, and, and, and also felt he didn't want to get into politics in that regard. He, he saw it as being associated with corruption the reason for that was he saw the last days of Hadrian. So now that kind of brings us back to, you know, we're, 
what he thought of uh, leadership. I think something that's strangely myth. There are many modern biographies of Marcus Aurelius, and I kind of love them all, but I also have mixed because I'm super into the subject. I love anything about it, but I also <laughs> feel quite disappointed by a lot of them, um, particularly some of them. That some of them are straight up anti-Stoicism, which is really weird. Mm. And looking, you know, <coughs> Frank Nolan's, like for example, like the most famous one, I just is very negative about Stoicism. And the other ones don't really say much about Stoicism, which seems really bizarre to me. Like, it would be like writing a biography of St. Paul or St. Augustine or somebody and kind of dismissing yeah. the role of Christianity and their thinking. Like, you know, you've got to understand what these guys thought about Christianity to understand their lives. You have to understand Stoicism in order to understand Marcus Aurelius's career as emperor, because that was his whole way of looking at life. And it clearly, the meditation shows he was really fixated on using Stoicism as a, a moral guide every day. So how could we kind of like bracket that off? And so in my biography, I tried to interweave the philosophy a lot more with the, the history, which is quite challenging in some ways. But what, one of the things that many things that kind of, I think are odd about biographies of Marcus are that they, for some reason, they don't say that much about Hadrian usually. Or not really about Marcus's relationship with Hadrian. And I even, I saw somebody um, kind of complained about something that I'd written and they were like, they thought I'd overstated the role of Hadrian um, in influencing Marcus. And I think they're wrong about that. Like, it's massively understated normally. Marcus spent the last, I think it was the last five or six months of his life living in Hadrian's villa. Um, and saw Hadrian's decline, like it's incredibly dramatic, intense, like, I mean, I imagine the last days of Hadrian being a bit like Apocalypse Now, which might surprise mm. people, right? <laughs> like Colonel Kurtz or something. Hadrian built this enormous, weird villa, like, full of sculptures of his deceased lover and crazy stuff. And Hadrian himself was a mess. Like, he had terrible health problems and was going progressively crazy and kept went to have political purges and stuff. Marcus was, like, 16, 17 and was reluctantly dragged out from his mother's home and told that he had to go and live there, which must have been insane. Like, you know, to just try and visualise what that was actually like. It's crazy. You could, I think you could almost have a whole movie just about Marcus Aurelius living in the villa of Hadrian and you know, mm. how, what crazy juxtaposition that is. And so I think that put Marcus off wanting to be emperor. Because although we often think of Hadrian as being quite a good emperor, he was, in many ways he was, as long as he stayed out of Rome. Like, but when he came back to Rome, it just went nuts. And, you know, he was a terrible emperor. I mean, here's a clue. The Senate wanted... Um, to condemn him after his death and didn't want to have him deified and wanted to annul all of his acts. So clearly the Senate after Hadrian's death hated him like, and thought he was a, a political tyrant, um, like, a, like a brutal dictator or something like that. Um, and he did some pretty horrendous things uh, in, in the last part of his life. So I, and including having uh, political uh, purges against two members of Marcus Aurelius' family. Like, so Marcus must have felt terrified <laughs> living as a kid <laughs> in Hadrian's villa. 
And and the other thing that no one ever mentions, which I th- I really lean into in the biography, and this comes back to leadership as well in a way. Well, let's take Hadrian as an example of a terrible leader, by the way. Right? Again, some people might be surprised by that. I'm talking about the last like year or so of his life, like as a as a terrible, corrupt, going bonkers, paranoid leader. Hadrian was notorious for having spies everywhere and opening people's mail, like mm. spying on all of his friends and family. Uh, Marcus Aurelius in the Meditations says things that stem from Stoic philosophy, but also seem incredibly kind of resonant for him. So at one point he says, never do anything that requires walls or curtains. Now that's coming from somebody that grew up in a villa surrounded by household spies. Like, and he could have been executed. Members of his family and his friends were exiled or executed or persecuted because of stuff that Hadrian probably found in their private letters or that servants in the household told Hadrian that these people had said about him behind his back. You know, so I imagine Marcus was like, I like I've got to watch everything that I say and do. Like and you know, if Hadrian changed his mind about the succession, Marcus could have got the chop like that. He was like sixteen, mm-hmm. seventeen, you know. So that must have had an effect on him. And I, I think I, I'm saying all of this because I think, to be honest, biographically, Marcus's idea of a good emperor basically or a good leader is the opposite of Hadrian. I really think that. And in the meditations, one of the strange, there are many strange things about the meditations. We could talk for hours about the meditations stylistically like, and the, the odd peculiarities of it. It's a strange text. Um, I'm, I believe the meditations was never meant for publication. There are a number of clues in that regard. There are clues that allow us to date it approximately. But uh, in the first book, book one of the meditations someone mentioned this to me one day and I said the penny dropped and I thought I'd never thought of it like that a bit like going to the dog park and thinking why isn't there a a conference centre here having spent years and years studying it someone said to me you know book one of the meditations is kind of like Marcus Aurelius the closest we have to Marcus Aurelius' autobiography and I thought it's not an autobiography but it's kind of like a fragment of an autobiography you're right in a way book one of the meditations which is the whole thing is just about his, how he perceives the most admirable qualities of his several of his family members and his tutors. Um, it's like, it's like a bit, it's like a fragment of an autobiography from Marcus. The rest of the meditations doesn't have much autobiographical stuff except perhaps about his general philosophy of life. There's one or two like vague things that we can draw out, but certainly in writing his biography, I drew very heavily on book one and what it tells us about his relationships. And so one of the odd things about it is that he says a lot about Antoninus Pius, his uh, adoptive father and the preceding emperor. And not only does he go on at him about a great length, far more than he does about anyone else in book one, Stylistically, I would say, reading it, it strikes me that that cannot have been spontaneous. That I think it's extremely likely that this is the product of years of contemplation and writing. If you think about how many distinct points he covers, imagine sitting down and making a list of the qualities you most admire in one of your parents or something, right? 
there'd probably be a few that come to mind and you'd have to kind of like think about it and how could you sum them up. Marcus can rattle off a list of about 20 or 30 points about it really concisely. He's he's done this yeah. before. Like, and in fact, later in the meditations, he does it again. Like he gives a different version of the things that he admires about Antoninus Pius. Now, actually, it's not surprising because as Caesar, Marcus Aurelius, we could assume would have given a number of speeches in praise of his adopted father, right? So he would have given, this is a formal rhetorical exercise, like he's given speeches where he praises him, and now he's turning it into a kind of contemplative practice. And in fact, in his private correspondence with Fronto, there's a bit where they talk about the fact that Marcus has written these speeches praising the quality. So we that's confirmed, like in his private correspondence. So it's interesting, we can, can weave this into Marcus's life. He's grown up where he has to officially stand before the Senate and give these highly technical, formal speeches praising his father. And then later in life, he's still, decades after Antoninus has died, like he's still kind of contemplating these qualities, trying to role model this guy that he thinks is the ideal emperor. Now, the strange thing about that isn't so much what he says about Antoninus Pius, it's the fact that he doesn't mention Hadrian, his adoptive mm -hmm. grandfather, right? And the guy who chose him to succeed. So Hadrian formed the succession plan where he said Antoninus would succeed him and then after that Marcus Aurelius, like, because he was a control freak, right? So he was like, I'm planning the whole genera generations down the line, I've got it all planned. Like, it made them all agree to it. And Mar Marcus was too young at that point to become emperor, so they, uh, Antoninus ruled in the interim. But Marcus, one reason that we think this wasn't intended for publication is people, Romans would have been shocked to read book one of the meditations for several reasons, but they would be shocked that Hadrian isn't mentioned because, and I can't emphasize this enough, Roman, uh, educated Romans and Greeks were far more sensitive to rhetoric than people are today. And there's a whole side discussion there, because I think Marcus mm. Aurelius and his friends and teachers would think we are all, as a society, incredibly gullible by comparison to them. They are mm. far better at spotting bad arguments than we are. We are relative like dimwits in that regard by comparison to them. Although science has progressed, we're not as good at logic like, as those guys were. <laughs> Right, and the the use of uh, the use of uh, fallacies to deceive people like these guys are experts at this, and uh, particularly Marcus spent decades studying logic and rhetoric with the, the finest teachers in the in the empire. Like it's difficult to imagine, you know, the extensive schooling that he had. So when he praises Antoninus Pius, Romans knew that if you say the new emperor is incredibly intelligent. He's so merciful that people in instinctively understood that that meant that you thought the preceding emperor was stupid and cruel. Like, so you would insult somebody by praising someone else was a very, fairly common strategy. Like, you know, it's quite sneaky. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't say he was stupid and cruel. Yeah, but by saying that the guy that replaced him is incredibly smart and merciful, it's kind of obvious what you're implying. And so by pr everything that Marcus says in praise of Antoninus can be seen on the one hand as role modeling what he thinks constitutes a good leader. We can read it as a template for Mar what Marcus's values are in regard to, to leadership. 
but there's a subtext in it. And if you look closely, it's actually very obvious. Like, where he's also criticising Hadrian, who, without even mentioning his name, and you could almost put in brackets after everything that Marcus says, or most of the things he says, you can imagine in brackets. He says, at one point he says, Antoninus, no one could accuse Antoninus of being a sophist. And you can imagine mm-hmm. in brackets it saying, unlike Hadrian, who was a massive sophist. Like, Hadrian <laughs> surrounded himself with sophists, professional sophists, and he used to compete with them in giving speeches. Like, he, he did want to, literally wanted to be, like, a sophist. Literally. Like, you know, was surrounded by the most famous sophists of the era and wanted to be one of them, wanted to prove he was smarter than, him, than them. Um, and so when Marcus says that, it's really obvious that he's contrasting him with Hadrian. So what he's saying is that we had this incredibly pretentious leader who always wanted to show off his intellectual prowess and wanted people to believe that he was the smartest guy in the room and stuff, and the most educated guy in the room. And that was toxic. It created a toxic workplace culture, if you like. Antoninus, Marcus says, was an incredibly humble guy. And his kind of go-to thing was he, you know, he was very good at listening to experts. But in order to do that, you need intellectual humility. Like, so, mm. so he was a good leader in the sense that he knew when to take advice from like guys that were experts about the law or experts about military strategy or whatever. You know, he he was a good he was good at listening and finding the right people to to listen to. But Marcus also says, but he wasn't gullible. He thought things through very carefully. But he also shut up and patiently listened to the experts in the room. Now, you know, you again, you might sense that when I'm saying that without naming anyone in particular, I'm commenting on contemporary U.S. politics. <laughs> so yeah. you know, this is sort of this is something that's lacking in some ways in in, in today's society. And also, the, you know, there's a commentary there on things like social media. Like, you know, we've created a culture through social media where it, it's all about sophistry. It's all about the image that you create and the way that you use it. In modern culture, the culture wars and things, it's all about language. Like, it's all about rhetoric and sophistry. Like, we're seeing, we're living in the third sophistic, like, in a way, <laughs> through social media. It's cyber sophistry. Uh, and we, that's why we need stoicism more than ever. Like, stoicism evolved in a way as our kind of defence against BS like this, mm. like, in politics and in the media. Like, stoicism evolved out of the Socratic tradition in part as a defence against political sophistry and rhetoric. Like, and, uh, you know, we need that now more than ever. We can look around us and see that society's, you know, uh, suffering why because of demagogue modern day demagogues and sophists why and the news media um i'll give you a very simple example like you know if you go on youtube or whatever and you look up news headlines on cnn or fox or whatever like i like to have a good laugh at what the headlines are for the videos because they're usually <laughs> things like you know um tucker carlson aghast at something or other like, you know, it's all editorialising. Like, it's all these guys, Don Lemon, shocked to discover. Like, so they're, <laughs> they're all telling us that we should be aghast and shocked and infuriated and outraged, like, about stuff. Like, clear, blatantly trying to kind of whip up fear and anger as much as possible. They literally are telling us, like, you should yeah. be aghast at this. You should be shocked by this. Whereas the Stoics say, no, we should all take a step back <laughs> and cool down and try and think things through logically, right? Don't let these guys tell you to be angry and frightened all the time. 
Like that's what the ancients offices and ancient politicians used to do. Like and we, we need to kinda we need to find ways to protect ourselves against that. How much power did someone like Marcus Aurelius as Roman emperor, I think maybe sometimes we can confuse and yeah. assume that he had absolute power to do X, Y, and Z. That's Could you best. maybe paint the picture there? Yeah. So first of all, again, it comes down to language, right? So this is like nerdy deep dive stuff, right? The Romans don't really have a word that equates to our word emperor. And when we use the word emperor, it, it's, it's, it's much more complicated, I think, than people realize in, in this regard. So mm. we, we tend to think of an emperor as like a king. So people often refer to Max Aurelius as being like a king or a monarch or whatever, which he did, absolutely would have horrified him. Like and he did, the Romans like abhorred the idea of a king for reasons that I'll come to in a moment. Um, so we think of it as like a, someone like a king who rules over multiple nations, I guess, is like an idea we have of an emperor. Um, and that's not really what I, um, what we mean by the Roman Emperor. The Roman Emperor, in some ways, is like that. But uh, first, things that people might not know, the, the Roman Emperor, first and foremost, is a military commander. Um, he's actually mm. uh, acclaimed, first of all, by the legions, like, as Imperator, which is the closest that they have to our word Emperor. Like, but that means Supreme Commander of the military, like, kind of, like... And so, so being supreme military commander, like then would be confirmed by the Senate, and the Senate would grant him various other powers. So he would become Pontifex Maximus. Um, he would get the tribunician power that allows him to veto acts in the Senate. Let's so say he'd get like a whole bunch of powers. Now, some of those powers can only be held by one guy, and some of them can be shared by multiple people. And so, in reality, it's kind of like a cluster of things um, that sometimes. So, for example, Marcus ruled as co-emperor with, with Lucius Verus. So both of them had the title Imperator, like, and both of them had the tribunician power, like, but only Marcus was the supreme priest. Like, so mm. they kind of divvied up the roles of what you could say of, of emperor, but not evenly. So this, maybe that's a good example of how it's a little bit more complicated than we realise. And another interesting thing about the life of Marcus is that Marcus got the tribunician power and I think the title of Imperator um, when his first child was born, which was about over a decade before he actually became emperor. So he, you could, one way of simplifying that is to say Marcus kind of ruled as virtual co-emperor in all but name. Um, alongside Antoninus Pius for over a decade before we think of... So when we say, like, Marcus became emperor at this point, that's not entirely true. It was more of a kind of, like, gradual, progressive thing that he took over. And obviously Antoninus died, Marcus uh, became more fully emperor. But it's, it's, it, we would think there was Antoninus and then Marcus suddenly becomes emperor, whereas there's more of an overlap. And then as soon as he becomes emperor, he also divvies up the roles with Lucius Verus. So you can see it's a, a more complex, like you'd have to draw a Venn diagram or something of, like, <laughs> yeah. uh, of what, what the office of emperor actually looked like. Did he have absolute power? I don't think we even really have a straight answer to that, funnily enough. Um, legally, and then also, I guess, politically and practically, there's, an, there's another way of answering the same question. So, legally, the emperor has this thing called the tribunician power, which allows him to veto acts in the Senate, which effectively, it's like 
par absolute pardon power or something like that. It effectively places him above the law and gives him absolute power in a kind of sneaky way. Um, however, because the um, because Marcus was the first person to formally appoint a co-emperor, it may be that Lucius Verus also shared tribunician power and could veto Marcus's acts. And I think what Marcus was trying to do, this is a little bit speculative, the Romans used to be ruled by uh, kings way back, um, before the, even the Republic, and they, they overthrew their king and replaced him with two consuls who were like prime ministers, the, 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 they were chief men in the, in the Senate. And they did that because they didn't want one person to have absolute power, they wanted it to be shared by at least two people so that they could prevent one-man rule. Um, and Marcus seems to be trying to emulate that in the office of emperor. Like, so he's modelling it on the way that the Senate works, it looks like. Mm. And I, so I think what his idea was is if there's at least two emperors, if one of them does something really crazy, at least there's a chance that the other emperor could veto him, like, and block it. Like, you know, so no, like, really crazy, like, if there was a really crazy act that he tried to pass, at the very least the other emperor could, could block it. Um, and, you know, that's, I maybe that's, you know, a token gesture, or a, I don't know how it would actually work in practice, but I think he was taking steps towards preventing autocracy in the office mm. of emperor. And certainly his whole philosophy seems geared towards viewing the office of emperor as being a servant of the people. I mean, I get there are people who don't know anything about Roman history who just kind of think that all the Roman emperors were like autocrats. Um, and that's yeah. not true. Like the office of emperor varied a lot throughout his, the imperial history, and some Roman emperors were like modelled themselves on Eastern monarchs and did behave like autocrats. And other Roman emperors, like Marcus Aurelius and Antoninus Pius, were massive nerds and career politicians and bureaucrats. Uh, Marcus spent decades studying Roman law. For example, he was like a, a kind of workaholic, and he took the office incredibly seriously. Whereas his, his adoptive brother, Lucius Verus, seems to have, by at least if we can trust the Roman histories, treated it as just being a celebrity. Like, and just threw lots of parties and big public games and stuff like that. And, you know, he saw it more as a privilege, whereas Marcus saw being emperor more as a duty. You know, real contrasting interpretations of, of what it meant to be a leader, if you like, uh, in those days. So... I mean, the other sense in which the Roman emperor didn't have absolute power is more practical, which is that a lot of Roman emperors were assassinated and or there were civil wars instigated against them. Now, because the legion acclaimed the emperor, it, because the weird way the Roman military worked, um, like any legion can uh, acclaim uh, an emperor and, and that happened. Um, so technically during Marcus Aurelius' role, there was a rival emperor for three months um, in 175 AD. The Egyptian and Syrian legions and probably others in the region declared Avidius Cassius imperator. And so he has that title. Like, it's, you know, you can't deny he's, like, the, the legions have declared him the supreme commander, so he, he now effectively has that title. And he began to put in the structure of power. He had a, he appointed Praetorian prefects and things like that. So he had a breakaway empire for all of like three months like <laughs> in the East. And so Marcus's power in a sense is limited 
by in practice by the fact that legions can break away and regions can break away and that happened to him hmm. it seems like it would require a tremendous amount of leadership ability to even try to remain as as emperor maintain some sort of uh peace and i'm curious to ask something that's fascinating to me Stoicism, most people are familiar with maybe often called the dichotomy of control. You know, what's up to us, what's not up to us. But then leadership, many people define leadership something along the lines of influencing others. And I'm sure that was part of of that art of leadership that Marcus Aurelius was putting into practice of this influencing others. Yeah, but the dichotomy of control is about realizing that we don't have complete control over external events, despite the fact that we can obviously influence them. I mean, if anyone thinks it means that we have no influence over any external event, <laughs> that would be crazy. Like, so then I guess yeah. you'd, you'd have to live like a jellyfish or something, you know, I like shouldn't <laughs> do anything. Right. But of course the Stoics believe that we can influence external events. Here's a clue. They wrote books and gave lectures Right? Yeah. So if you compare it to that, what would be the point in Epictetus telling us this if he didn't believe that telling us about the dichotomy of control might mean that we could learn from his words and he'd have some influence <laughs> over it, right? So teachers yeah. are leaders, in a sense. It's a different type of leadership, but all, all the Stoic scholars and teachers are leaders, in a sense. They're, they're kind of thought leaders, they're educators, um, even if they're not political leaders. So I think a bad leader also would be somebody, I mean, a crazy leader would be somebody who believes that he has complete control over the people that work for him or the people that serve under him. Um, so the truth is obviously somewhere in between. Like, we only have absolute control over our own, by definition, voluntary thoughts and actions. We don't even have complete control over all of our actions. Some of them are involuntary. We don't even, we certainly don't. Any There are, I mean, some of the things that people say about Stoicism are so kind of dumb that, you know, these things on the internet where you're like, you know, the meme that says, not sure if you're trolling or just stupid. But there's things that people say about Stoicism that are so weird. It sounds hard to refute them because it, it sounds patronizing. Like, so there are people who criticise Stoicism in writing, in articles even, because they think that the Stoics believe that we have control over all of our thoughts, right? The Stoics would have to be insane to believe that, like, you know, because it's obviously self-evidently not true, right? But you'll, you'll read people on the internet who interpret Stoicism that way. Like, it's kind of a straw man argument, because they're attributing a view to the Stoics that's so obviously ridiculous that it's really easy to refute. Of course, we don't have complete voluntary control over everything that goes on between our ears. Like, you know, and, and the, the Stoics clearly don't believe that. So the Stoics think that we have voluntary control over some of our thoughts and some of our actions. And a lot of what goes on inside us emotionally and cognitively is automatic or involuntary. And a, a lot of what's going on in our environment is it's just simply, you know, out of our hands. Um, and a good leader is grounded or centred on his own voluntary thoughts and actions and has to make many judgment calls about probability. Like, you know, but the Stoics thought we need to keep a focus on our locus of control. 
the the modern author who says something very similar to that. I mean, there are many modern authors who say things that are similar, but the one that strikes me most is Stephen Covey, who has essentially exactly the same idea in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, he talks about the sphere of control or something. I think he's haven't read it for a while, but I think, I think that's how he phrases it. And so it's a simple idea, um, but it's really about mindfulness in a way and about taking ownership and responsibility. Now, just as an aside, in the field of psychotherapy, so by profession, I'm a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist. Um, I would go as far as to say, and I, I specialized in treating anxiety disorders. Like I, I would go as far as to say that the dichotomy of control is possibly the most fundamental concept um, in my eyes, in the treatment of anxiety and depressive disorders in general, like maybe, like it's certainly one of the most fundamental ideas. I could I could wax lyrical at great length about the many ways in which people who suffer from anxiety disorders tend to get confused about what aspects of their experience are under direct control and which aspects aren't. Like, blurring that distinction is definitely fundamental to psychopathology and the anxiety disorders and I think in depression as well. So it's, the Stoics were definitely way ahead of their time in that regard. And, and it's a confusing idea. And I think modern uh, Stoics, uh, modern students of Stoicism, would, would definitely benefit from exploring that idea in a much deeper and a much more nuanced way because there's a great deal to be gained from it. Um, I'll give it very briefly. Like, um, typically in, in anxiety disorders, with any client I would, I'd be working with, one of the first things I would do would be to say, look, there are involuntary, physiological largely, uh, also cognitive, aspects of anxiety that are what we call automatic in modern cognitive psychology. So there are thoughts that just pop in your mind um, there are flashbacks of memories, there are physiological symptoms of anxiety, like your, your hands sweating, your heart beating and stuff like that, that are largely involuntary, or certainly not under direct voluntary control. And most people make those symptoms worse by trying to control them, whereas they'd be mm. better off to view them with indifference and accept them as natural, like, and in, in, in the harmless and indifferent. And we, so we know that there's tons of research that point in that direction. So they, what they need to do is to learn to be more indifferent, more accepting towards all these different involuntary aspects of anxiety. And at the same time, most people, and there's direct research that directly shows that most people with certain types of anxiety will underestimate how much voluntary control they have over certain types of thinking such as rumination and worry or how we tend to describe it so how much time they spend ruminating about the things that are making them anxious is under voluntary control actually but clients and therapists say no it's, un it's out of my control i can't control how much i worry but we know that they can they they so they are they're in some areas they overestimate the control like, and overextend it. In other areas, they're underestimating the control. So that's how, like, literally how mixed up people are about what's going on inside their own head. And sorting that out is absolutely, of course, when you describe it like it's clear, that's going to be fundamental to, to doing any type of cognitive therapy. 
It's so fascinating what you say there. And I mean, that whole bit could maybe be under an umbrella of like understanding human nature. I was just, as I said, cracking open the graphic novel and the idea of um, it, it was on the page of the dialogue of Socrates saying that no one essentially knowingly does wrong. It seems, and, and I'm someone who's read a lot of leadership books. I mean, it was formerly a big leadership nerd. I mean, there are lots of leadership books where you can pick it up and there's really not a chapter on that type of understanding human nature and some of those aspects of, of, of being human. That might be the, co- the most controversial philosophical idea in history. Like mm. that, that's it was famously Socrates that said that. I stood up and said that in the Marine Corps University, like, and the people kind of gasped, like, but I was very careful. I said, like, I said, well, let's kind of like unpack this idea, right? No man does evil <laughs> willingly or knowingly, like, both he says, both like Socrates says, and the Stoics were all in, like, with that idea. Um, I think it's incredibly important, like, because. You know, the way I would frame it, there's many ways that we can try and unpack that idea. But one is, like, if you take any horrible dictator in history, like Stalin or, you know, Hitler or whoever, they totally believed that what they were doing was justified. Like, they were, they didn't, Hitler didn't wake up cackling in the morning and think, I'm just going to do something really evil for the sake of it. Like, he completely believed in his crazy ideology. And, like, he absolutely believed that he was doing the right thing and it was justified. That's why he was so dangerous. Like, you know, the, the, the most dangerous people are the ones that believe that what they're doing is rational and justified, right? Um, I mean, in a way, if you didn't, if you thought what you were doing was just evil and crazy, you'd probably be more hesitant about it. Like, and it would be less infectious. Like, the dangerous dictators believe that, are the ones that believe they're justified, because then they spread that to everybody else as well. They start going around trying to convince other people to, to believe them. They've got a crazy rationale for what they're doing. But if you think about it that way, then you would view wrongdoing more as ignorance or people being misguided or making errors of judgment rather than Mm -hmm. just kind of crude, malicious intention. And I mean, at the very least, then you kind of think, I need to try and understand these guys more. And in order to deal with them, of course, I'm going to need to know more about their thinking. And a good way of understanding that is, like, if you think about stories about great detectives like Sherlock Holmes, you know, he really wants to try and understand Moriarty, like, in order to defeat him. And any great general, like, has to try and put himself in the shoes of the enemy general, like, and not just kind of caricature him as just a bad guy. Like, he has to understand what motivates him and why he believes in what he's doing in order to anticipate what he's going to do next. Like, and to kind of figure out, you know, like how to defeat him, I would, I would think. I would think a bad strategist would be somebody who views the enemy as just a baddie, like is just mm. malicious. That that seems like a childlike understanding of the enemy strategy, right, and motivations. So surely any good general has to, or any good detective, or any good psychologist has to be able to empathise. Like, and put them and suspend value judgments to some extent, in a sense, enough to be able to put themselves in the other person's shoes and, and attribute actual realistic motives to them. I mean, I and in a way, this is very familiar to me as a therapist because the job of any therapist and counselor 
I guess an inter an interesting intermediate is, of course, I worked with clients over the years who were lovely people, right? Who had anxiety or depression or whatever, but also worked with criminals, like, and I worked with the probation service and um, with kids that were socially excluded that had been kicked out of school for doing horrible things. Uh, when I was a schools counselor, I would see kids that had been bullied, and then after lunch, I'd be counselling the kid that bullied them. All right which was very interesting to see the same events from both perspectives, right? Um, and as a therapist, your job is to assess. You, the first thing you do is sit for an hour with a client and ask them like about their personal history, about their family structure, about their goals and values and desires, and about what was going on in their thoughts, actions, and feelings when they were engaged in these behaviors. So you, you really systematically try to understand what's going on with somebody. So all therapists and counsellors are trained to do this kind of deep dive into understanding the individual's motivations. Um, and yet in society, when somebody does something we don't like, we, we think they just did that because they're a shitty person. Which hmm. is, when you see that on the internet and stuff and politicians talking that way, it, it's, it seems weirdly like a regression to a very infantile, like toddler-esque way of thinking. I, you know, like as as we grow up from being two year olds, we progress to attributing more complex motives, like and thinking to to other individuals. But under stress, we revert to simplistic childlike ways of thinking. And I think social media, in some ways, is kind of coercing us, and it's turning us all into like uh, toddlers, like mm. and and you know forcing us to reduce our thinking to this kind of infantile level. And you cannot solve social problems like if you view other people as kind of caricatures. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you a, I think a, a related question. I've, I've heard you say, and I may butcher this a bit, but something about anger being the royal road yeah. to self-improvement. Could you That's unpack exactly that a I bit? Said. That's exactly Is what it? I said. Yeah. <laughs> Anger is the royal road to self-improvement. I'll tell you why I believe that. There are, broadly speaking, three categories of negative emotion we talk about in therapy. Anger, fear, and sadness, right? Psychotherapy consulting rooms are full. I specialized in fear or anxiety. Some people specialize in sadness or depression. Um, people with anxiety or depression uh, tend to be self-blaming. And they typically, they often seek, not always, but generally they, they're, they're more likely to seek therapy. And usually people have a mixture, like anxious people also have some anger, like depressed people also often have quite a lot of anger, but pre pre predominantly they're anxious or depressed. They're likely to, to go and seek help and to feel that there's something wrong. Angry people are very different. The anger is an externalizing emotion. Angry people usually blame other people. So it's unusual for people who are predominantly angry to self-refer for treatment. Where we see angry people in therapy is in institutions. So in schools, kids will be mm. referred for angry outbursts in the classroom. In relationships also, one partner will uh, tell or ask the other partner to go to therapy because they've got a problem with their anger. In prisons, uh, inmates are referred for anger management. In the military, 
someone might be told that they need to go and have anger management. But angry people don't usually seek treatment themselves. It's usually at the behest of other people that they're told to go and seek treatment, right? So angry people, more than depressed or anxious people, lack insight like, into the fact that they have a need to do psychotherapy. Now, what does that tell you, right? That tells you that in a modern society, which is dominated awash with self-help, right that if left to their own devices people are more likely to go online looking for ways to deal with anxiety and depression but unlikely to seek self-help for anger right then they need usually other people to tell them or at least they come into therapy with depression or anxiety and at some point maybe the therapist brings up the topic of their anger as well anger is typically ignored in modern self-help literature and online no one's interested in addressing their anger Anger is also in some ways the most problematic emotion in terms of society. Anger gets into politics, like mm -hmm. it gets into relationships, it gets into society, mm -hmm. it affects the way we interact with other people. Anger makes us want to hurt and punish other people or other groups of people like, or other nations or races of people or, or, or other religions. You know, anger turns into spite and hatred, you know. And so it affects society, in a sense, in a more direct way, and in a more pervasive way than fear and sadness do, right? It's more of a public emotion. Now, I, so first of all, I think most people have a massive blind spot for the way that anger is affecting them pathologically. And so that means there's more opportunity. It's like a, a, a gold mine that's, let, that's untapped, in that sense, right? There's a festering wound there that's gone untreated in the, in the majority of people because by its very nature, we, we tend to ignore it unless someone else draws our attention to it. Um, and I think particularly, you know, in, in some ways with social media and so on, that people are given a, an outlet for anger where it kind of goes unchallenged. Um, people say things with a veil of anonymity on social media that they wouldn't get away with saying to your face. You know, like you challenge them more. It'd be more obvious that what they were doing was weird and kind of crazy talk. Like, you know, that kind of crazy talk goes unchallenged more. Um, they have an outlet for it. And, and that means that they do more and more of it. Like, and it becomes more habitual. So it's the royal road because it's like a festering wound that's gone untreated. That's where the therapy could actually happen. It's the biggest opportunity, like, mm. for self-improvement in most cases. And... You know, also because anger is particularly an interpersonal emotion, there's a lot more opportunity for other people to help us in drawing our attention to the way that we're interacting with them. Um, and it, it, so in some ways, it's kind of easier once you realize this to bring to people's attention, you know, to hold a mirror up to them. As long as they're willing to talk to somebody like honestly about it there's a huge opportunity for that other person to hold a mirror up to them and draw their attention to this massive festering blind spot and the stoics knew that there's no coincidence that you know they we do you know that we only have one survive i would say in my view we have one surviving stoic book on psychotherapy so people wouldn't realize that the stoics straight up I've, I, the other crazy thing i've heard people saying over the years is that psychotherapy is a modern concept and that you, we're kind of reading that into ancient stoics um and that 
that to me shows an, a tremendous ignorance of classical literature because psychotherapy was actually a very familiar concept and quite a fundamental concept in ancient philosophy. It's pretty pervasive, actually. They don't use the word psychotherapy, but they virtually use it. They talk about therapia, use the word therapy, of the psyche. Like, I mean, they come within a hair's breadth of just saying psychotherapy. As far as I know, that formation doesn't exist in ancient texts, but they come that close. They had entire books de clearly dedicated to it. Chris Ipish wrote a book called, famous book called On Therapeutics, which is completely lost to us now. It's about Stoic psychotherapy. We have a book by Galen, Marcus Aurelius's physician, called On the Diagnosis and Cure of the Soul's Passions. Now, the Greek word for passion is the root word of our, uh, of our path, uh, pathology, pathos, right? So it could also mean on the diagnosis and cure of the soul's psychopathology. It would be another way of translating that, basically. Um, that's clearly a book on psychotherapy, like, and the contents are yeah. clearly a type of psychotherapy which was inspired by Chrysippus and Zeno and early Stoic writers, although it's more eclectic in its nature. But we have one surviving Stoic book on psychotherapy, and it's very famous. Like, it's Seneca's On Anger, and it's entirely dedicated to the Stoic psychotherapy of anger, because the Stoics believed that anger was the emotion which we were most urgently in need of treating. And Seneca talks about the importance of treating anger at great length and in great depth in that one book. We we spoke um, last time on the podcast about Stoicism and compassion. And something you said is that, you know, you're surprised that so many people can read meditations and not yeah. necessarily get, you know, this kindness and compassion everywhere. But let me ask, in the way of this anger and this royal road, you know, how important is it understanding that kindness and compassion is a bit of the project? You know, it's like the, I don't know, could you say more on that? Yeah. Like, well, first of all, I don't like the word compassion, but we're kind of stuck with it. Because strictly speaking, the word, the root meaning of compassion is to share a passion. Like, mm. same as the word sympathy. Like, and that very idea kind of arcs the Stoics, because passion really means yeah. pathological emotion. And so there's a, I'll, I'll digress slightly here, because there's a really important paradox in therapy, which is how do you empathize with somebody without agreeing with them? Like, so yeah. you have a client in therapy who's like, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I think I'll go and eat worms. It's kids' nursery rhyme, right? right? But that's kind of like how you feel when you're depressed. Nobody likes me, everybody hates me. Mm -hmm. And so as a therapist, you need to kind of empathize with clients and they need to feel empathized with, but you don't want to actually agree with them that nobody likes them and everybody hates them because probably that's a cognitive distortion. Like, it's a sweeping generalization, it's mind reading and stuff like that. It's like, you know, crazy talk in a way, right? Like, but we see things through very distorted lenses when we're depressed. So we want to empathize with people, like, but we, we, the way it's usually phrased in counseling is to empathize without sympathizing. Like, so, you know, it, it's hard. We don't even have good language to describe this nuanced difference. But how can you put some, yourself in someone's shoes without getting sucked into their psychopathology? Like, without it kind of infecting you. And in a way, I think part of it is that you need to put yourself in someone's shoes, but also be able to see way beyond it. Like, you know, I, I need to see through the, the lenses that you're looking through, but also I need to see beyond them at the same time. 
like to realize that that's just what that is that that's a way of looking at things but it's not the only it's not the whole story and it's not the only way of looking at it that allows me to experience looking through your rose tinted glasses or you know shitty colored glasses but also see see other things at the same time um i think that's the the trick and i think the stoics are kind of uh, aware of that so the stoics were it, it's it's one that i'll mention also a problem with translation one of the reasons this isn't fully understood is that it's hard to translate emotional language um, from one from one language to another. So if you're trying to translate the stuff that Stoics say about emotions, it, it, it sometimes it's tricky to find an exact English equivalent. Like, but if you can look at the ancient Greek, you kind of it's more obvious what they're saying. But when you just read Marcus Aurelius in translation, for example, the word, the very word passion. In English, that means just like a strong emotion. But to the Stoics, it's the same word that they use for pathology. So it's clearly, they define it as an irrational, excessive and unhealthy emotion. It's mm. psychopathology they're talking about. They're not saying that all, oh, um, for example, the Stoics thought love is and friendship are important. And we might call those passions. So the Stoics say there are healthy emotions and desires, or healthy passions, if you like. Kindness, how important is it? It's uh, it's a virtue in Stoicism, technically. It's classed as one of the, it's subordinate. This will confuse people, and it's also a problem with translation. It's subordinate to the cardinal virtue of justice. What? Like, how's that? Because <laughs> the word that we translate as justice is dikaiosune in Greek, and that does not mean justice. Like, it, it there's no exact English word that could translate it, unfortunately. Um... Some people have tried to translate it just as morality. Like, it's much, it's broader than what we mean by justice. So, in Greek, a mother, a good mother will exhibit the kaiosune towards her children. We also exhibit it towards the gods when we're behaving respectfully and piously. Like, that's got nothing to do with justice in the kind of legal sense. The Stoics say that the kaiosune consists of two main subordinate virtues. One of them is fairness. And the other one is benevolence or kindness. So one is treating people in a fair, impartial way, and the other one is trying to help them. Now, when we use the word justice in English, it, it maybe includes fairness, but it tends not to really acknowledge half of the virtue, the bit that has to do with benevolence or beneficence or kindness or compassion or anything like that. Or basically, in stoic terms, it's the desire to help other people, very simply. It's as simple as mm. that. And it's the, that's the opposite of anger. The Stoics define anger as the desire for revenge, the desire to punish or harm other people. Like, and kindness is the complete antithesis to that. It's the desire to help other people, even our enemies. Famous, this is integral to book one of Plato's Republic, where Socrates is debating the concept of justice, or the Chiasuni. There's a famous, this seems like a bit of a digression, but I think it's so important. There's a famous Greek slogan that derives from the military that justice consists in helping your friends and harming your enemies. So you help your allies in war and you punish your enemies in war. So that's how justice is defined. And people then applied that to civilian society as well. Like it was generally viewed as a definition of justice. Cut a very long story very short. And the Republic, in book one, like, there are ten books, like, Socrates disputes that idea, and although he doesn't state this explicitly, 
although later authors say that it was explicitly his belief. Socrates appears to say that he thinks justice doesn't consist in helping your friends and harming your enemies, but in helping your friends and helping your enemies as well. Like, so he says, rather than trying to harm or punish your enemies, you should be trying to educate them like, and turn them into allies. And he says there's a fundamental difference between the type of person who thinks that they should be harming, destroying, and punishing their enemies, and the type of person that thinks that they should be trying to turn their enemies into friends. Like, and this, he thinks, is the, the core of philosophical ethics, and the Stoics agree with him, basically. But Marcus Aurelius also just explicitly says that kindness is the main antidote to anger for that reason, because in his view, technically, it, it's, it's got the opposing structure. He actually calls it an antidote for the venom of anger. He sees it as the polar opposite emotion. So in modern psychotherapy, there's this old concept from that became popular in the 1950s from early behaviour therapy called reciprocal inhibition, to use the technical term for it. And reciprocal inhibition is a very simple idea that if you want to get rid of one behaviour or emotion, what you should do is cultivate an emotion or behaviour that's directly incompatible with it. So they're mutually exclusive, right? Mm. So you would treat anxiety by training people in relaxation techniques. Because relaxation and anxiety are mutually exclusive. Like, so one will replace or supplant the other. Uh, so Marcus is using that same concept. And I guess it's integral to ancient Stoic, Stoic psychotherapy, where he says, from a technical point of view... Kindness is the antithesis of anger. So one way of countering anger is to directly cultivate attitudes of kindness that will replace and supplant attitudes of anger. And that is, you know, we both read the Bible day and night, but you read black or I read white. William Blake said, I can't believe that people read the meditations and think that it's this kind of weird atomistic Ayn Rand type kind of philosophy that it embodies when on virtually every single page of it, he refers to ethical cosmopolitanism, philostorgia, or natural affection, dikaiosune, or social virtue, like on countering anger and alienation. The main theme, if there was a main theme of the meditations, I would say the main overarching theme of the meditations is social virtue and the psychotherapy of anger. That's the main thing he's interested in in that book. Well, I love it. And I greatly appreciate you coming on to to share your wisdom and, and, and help us out to to see that. And it's um yeah, it's a real real pleasure. And so you've got graphic novel, which we talked about, how to think like a Roman emperor. But recently I was happy to see you jumped on Substack and and have a podcast out there. Could you share with the listeners yeah. where they can go for that? Well, I've got this philosophy, Stoicism, philosophy as a way of life. I said, I was using Medium and then I suddenly thought Substack seems to work a lot better for me. So I've been doing Substack and it's kind of taken off really quickly. And uh, so I did a podcast. I just read a couple of articles, but that seemed to go quite well. And then I thought I was looking around for someone to interview, you know, and uh, I'm kind of lazy like that. So I thought, <laughs> who's it? It's the cat. I thought I could interview the cat. Uh, or my wife. Like, so I did something that's quite dangerous, really. Like, I went, uh, I interviewed my, I interviewed my wife, but it went much better than expected. Like, because nice. uh, my <laughs> wife is an editor and a writer, 
and she's just edited a book about stoicism and she's in the middle of writing another book about stoicism, about CBT and stoicism with two clinical psychologists. Um, and so I, I had a chat with her like that. So that episode hasn't come out yet, but it'll come out pretty soon um, when I'm talking to Casey about what she thinks about uh, about stoicism. Awesome. Well, grateful for your time, grateful for your work in the world. Donald Robertson, thank you so much for coming back on In Search of Wisdom. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice.